travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Road trips are one of travel's great forms of adventure. From the Griswold's cross-country family vacation to Wally World, to my own explorations of eastern Cambodia, to design tours for international visitors, the road trip is a time-honored tradition. Nowadays, one might imagine traveling by camper van to Mexico or Central America, or even renting a car in the north of Japan and driving it south from island to island. But who would ever imagine taking a road trip by car from Myanmar to Holland? Well, our guest today, Edwin Briels, did just that. And today he's going to share how it all went down. So buckle up. This is Myanmar to Holland by land with Edmund Briels on Talk Travel Asia. I'm Trevor Ranges, and with me once again is Mr. Scott Coates. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing good, Trevor. Thanks for the mister on that one. And uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to talk about this one because, you know, I've long dreamed of kind of a long road trip like this. And frankly, I haven't met too many people I can even think of now that have done this kind of trip. And a few months ago, I met Edwin for dinner and he kind of casually mentioned this trip. And I, I think I had to say, hang on, hang on a sec, back up here and tell me a bit about this. So I'm, I'm really glad he's going to be on the show. But, um, you know, thinking about road trips, Trevor, have you done any epic kind of road trips? You know, it's been a while. As a kid, we did the kind of Wally World one and uh, we drove mm -hmm. across country to California uh, with my parents and ended up at uh, Disneyland there. And that was pretty fun. Every summer we used to go down to my grandmother's in New Jersey and we'd road trip from Vermont to Jersey. And, mm. uh, you know, when I lived in California, California is quite a big state. So we used to road trip around there a bit. And once even, uh, with a friend of mine from Australia, we relocated a car from San Francisco to long Island. And that was really oh, wow. cool just to see, like to see America, but to see it through the eyes of an Australian person who, you know, is from a country that is nearly as big, but has mostly nothing in the middle. So I hitchhiked around Australia. I mentioned numerous times on the show and, and, and that's kind of my favorite form of road trip. But, uh, you know, I do like, I like doing the road trip. I like renting cars or, you know, packing up the car full of snacks and sleeping bags and, friends and mixtapes. The mixtape is a big part of the road trip. I guess it would be a mixed DVD at another playlist. Now making a road trip playlist uh, is a pretty cool part of the experience. Uh, how about you? Got any good playlist road trip stories? Well, you know, it's funny when, when you, we were kind of thinking about this, I didn't think I had really done any road trips. And I got thinking about it and, you know, we did provincial road trips as, as a kid, you know, we go camping places, but when I was about 10, my dad had a Kawasaki 1200cc motorcycle and he drove mm. from Prince Edward Island where we lived to Toronto, Canada and back. I'm not sure the distance on that, but that's quite an epic trip as a kid. And then I realized, you know what, my parents came and visited me in Australia when I was uh, a backpacker there and they rented a motorhome and we drove that from Cairns, Australia in the Northeast all the way down to the capital Canberra and then wow, back nice up one. to Sydney. So that was pretty damn awesome. And I kind of forgot about that one. And once I had to drive a car to help somebody from Bangkok, and we headed all the way east to Uban Ratchatani, and then north along the Mekong River, uh, 
along the border with Thailand and Laos, up to Vientiane, the border with Vientiane, Laos, and then down to Khon Kent, which I'd also forgotten about that. And then, you know, multiple times I've done the one or a couple day drive between Calgary and Vancouver, which is over a thousand kilometers through the Rockies. And uh, yeah, so I guess I have had some pretty neat road trips and, and I had almost forgotten about them, but I don't think I've done anything on the scale of our guest Edwin today. No. Well, why don't uh, we bring him in and hear what he's got to say. According to his LinkedIn bio, Edwin Briels is an entrepreneur based in Myanmar who focuses on how to use tourism for the sustainable development of the country and creating top products, whether they're a balloon ride, a luxury hotel, or a travel experience or event. He's the owner or co-owner of Lale Lodge, Exploration Travel, Myanmar and Thailand, as well as Counseling Corner Myanmar. Boy, he has his hands in a lot of different things. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, Edwin. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here because you and I have an old travel connection, I think a decade plus, but somehow never met over that time at all. And then about five months ago, we're at a talk by Philip Cornwell Smith, who wrote Very Thai and Very Bangkok. And you were nice enough to kind of tap me on the shoulder at the end, and we've since had dinner. So that's cool. Yes, very cool indeed. Okay, so Edwin, we always like to start at the beginning with everyone. So where are you originally from and what was your life before Asia? Um, originally from the Netherlands, studied there, studied facility management. And once I graduated, I wanted to travel. I wanted to explore more of the world. So I started with Southern Europe and then soon enough went to uh, Asia. And my first destination was Thailand. Ah. where I start working as a tour leader. Cool. Yeah, very cool. And since then, I tried twice to go back to the Netherlands. I lasted for a year, and then I came back. Okay, so you came to Asia, you got the bug, and you pretty much stayed. So how long have you been over here now? I think now it's almost 25 years, you know, a bit, bit more even. Wow, okay. And then what was your first experience in Myanmar? I first worked in Thailand as a tour leader. So I worked here for nine months and then I went on a holiday in Myanmar. Uh, I remember it was uh, during the Tinjan Festival, the, the water festival. And somehow when I arrived there, I felt like this is cool as well. So soon after that, I found a job as a tour leader in Myanmar. Really? And what year was that that you decided you were going to turn pro and stay in Myanmar? That was in 1996. I went to first for the water festival for a holiday. And I think six months later, I had a job there. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, we're skipping ahead 20 some years now, but, uh, you know, like when did you set Like, like we want to get to this road trip because that's really the exciting thing that uh, maybe you're going to share with us today besides the beach resorts and some of the, the beaches and islands that we might want to have you come back on the show for. But, uh, you know, if we could skip ahead a bit, like what inspired you to be like, hey, you know what? I've, I've enjoyed being in Myanmar long enough. Now I'm going to drive all the way from here back to Europe. Um, I think it's not about enjoying being long enough in Myanmar, but it's more like being long enough in the job. And after a while, you just, it starts bugging. It starts like, oh, you want to do something incredible. So that's why I thought like, why not drive back to, uh, to the Netherlands? Okay, and so when did you, what year was it that you set out to do this trip? The year before COVID. So 2019? 2019, yes. So 2019, and I mean, what made you realize, like, I'm going to do this, or where did the idea come from? What was the moment that you really decided, yeah, I'm in? Uh, I think it was one of my dreams for a long time. 
I mean, I've, I've been about 10 years ago, I traveled overland by train from Europe to Asia, mm-hmm. Trans-Mongolia Express to China, then traveled to China to Vietnam. And as you grow older and more fond on cars, I think that's when you think like, can I do the same thing by car? All right. So why don't you lead us through some of the logistics then? Once you've set your mind to do it, kind of what's the first thing to do? Did you already own a car? Did you pour over maps and try and figure out your route? Or did this all sort of just uh, happen simultaneously? I already owned a car. I had a, a Mima car, which is quite strong enough, sturdy enough, uh, a Toyota Kluger. So I thought that car should be okay. And then you start searching the internet. And you find out that there's a couple of groups of people who are doing these overland trips. And you start figuring it out step by step, basically. And what was the start and end point on your plan? Starting in Yangon? Starting in Yangon, ending in the Netherlands. Okay. So what was the kind of car you had again? Toyota Kluger. A Toyota Kluger. Kluger, yes. I've never even heard about this. Okay. So you've got the Kluger, you've got your start and ending point, and you find some online groups. Like what were the possible routes and how did you end up settling on the route that you ultimately picked? Funny enough, it's Google Maps. Hmm. Google Maps is excellent. I I did buy some some better navigation tools, uh, which I ditched after three days in India. Really? Because they didn't work very well. Google Maps was really perfect. And uh, Maps.me is also uh, very good. Hmm. So basically, you just go from big city to big city. I mean, obviously, you can't say Yangon, Netherlands, give me the words. So right. you have to go from city to city. Um, and initially, I wanted to pass through Pakistan because I heard good things about Pakistan. So I remember going to the Pakistan embassy in Yangon, I think four times, sitting and waiting and waiting. And it was clear that they were not going to give a visa. Ah. It was in the time that even Thai Airways was not allowed to fly over Pakistan because there were some fights between India and Pakistan. Oh, right. So then I thought, like, okay, that's not going to work. Uh, so then I looked for an alternative routing, and then I thought about Nepal, Tibet. Hmm. So then we decided to work on that routing. Yeah, you know, I guess, I don't know. I, I got to imagine that uh, a road trip like this isn't going to go as expected. Like, you're going to think you have a route, but you may not necessarily end up doing what you set out to for god knows how many different reasons did you do this alone or were you able to convince somebody to come along with you i did convince several people to come along and how i did it is i asked people for different parts of the track because it's a 10 weeks it was about 10 weeks that i drove about it having the same person in the car for 10 weeks could be challenging (laughs) so I thought like it's nicer to have different friends coming in. And that worked in perfectly, actually, with people flying into Yangon and do the first parts uh, through China. And then other friends arriving in Tajikistan for the Tajikistan part or uh, Kazakhstan. So that was really cool. That's neat. I, I've got three quick questions on this. What was the distance? Like you said, 10 weeks. What was the distance roughly that you thought it was going to be? 17,500. Okay. 17 and a half thousand K. Okay. How do you, how long was the planning stage of this and how do you secure like car documents and do you need a pre-visa for your car? So how long to pre-plan and then how do you arrange the papers for the car? Yeah. The, the pre-planning, it, it takes a bit of time. You need a passport for your car. Okay. It's called a Canet de Passage. And 
probably it's very easy to get it in other countries, but in Myanmar, it was a bit more complicated mm. uh, because there's no car association who can issue this Granite Passage. Right. So I managed to convince the German um, car association to issue a Granite Passage for a Burmese car. Mm. And funny enough, they said, that's fine. They couldn't send this whole paper to Myanmar. They had to send it to an address in the Netherlands, but then it was fine. And with that Carnet de Passage, you can basically pass borders, international borders, because it's a proof that you won't sell the car in a different, in a third country. Ah, right. So you have to pay a deposit for the car. Oh, in, in Myanmar? No, in Germany. In Germany. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now I get it. And so last one before I'll let Trevor jump in with another. How long was the pre-planning from when you kind of decided you were going to do it? Like, did this take multiple months or what? I think about four or five months. Wow. Yeah, because I, of course I also had to plan at work that it was okay for me to go away for three months. Mm. Now I planned it during the low season in tourism. Mm-hmm. So that was okay. And the, the staff, they, they were all like, okay, well, great. If you're doing that, we will guard the, the castle. You know, just one last thing about the car, I guess, is that like, you know, you, you just named some Ford American model that neither of us had heard of because it's a Burmese car. And I've a been Toyota, to I think. Toyota. Oh, it was a Toyota. Okay, that's better. Because at least, uh, yeah, I would have said I, like a Toyota Corolla or something where like parts should be pretty easy to come by. Did you bring a whole bunch of car parts? Did you bring fan belts and stuff like that, you know, just to make sure that you'd be able to get them along the way? No, because I don't know anything about cars. Oh, gosh. I literally, three days before I left, I asked a friend of mine, my driver in Myanmar, to teach me a little bit about cars because I hardly know how to open the hood. <laughs> Let's then change anything. So they, they just taught me, like, okay, how to check the fluids of the car, how to change it. I knew how to change a tire made sure that I had the right petrol to put it in. Then they said, anything else, you go to a garage. So what I did along the road is go to Toyota garages and have the car checked up. Hmm. So I did that in Nepal. I did it in uh, Tajikistan. I did it in Kazakhstan somewhere. Wow, neat. Okay, so yeah, I was figuring you would have taken a mechanics course or something, but that's quite interesting. And I suppose like you know, Toyota too, there's lots of those cars around the world. And uh... Uh, Honestly, Toyota is fantastic. Hmm. And you can go to every garage. They know everything about these cars. They, these garages, they look often the same. Hmm. So you just bring it there and say, okay, check everything. Okay, so the big day comes. What, what, when was it? Do you know the month and date that you started out? It was in May, the middle of May, I think. The middle of May, 2019. It's going to take 10 weeks. You figure it's 17 and a half thousand kilometers. You head out of Yangon. What's your first country? And tell us a bit about that first crossing. The first crossing was, was funny because you're going into India. And immediately you see the difference between Myanmar and India. Where in Myanmar, things were a bit complicated to get the, country, the car out. Mm-hmm. Because obviously people were not used to having cars leaving the country once you arrive into india at that small border crossing they have never had a car seeing entering it but they saw the car at the passage and they say well if you tell me to stamp here i will stamp here and that's it mm-hmm. so it's very easy going the same when i uh, continued from india to nepal it was uh, very easy and what you see there like and i saw that during the whole trip actually when you cross a border the other side of the border is either exactly the same or it's completely different. Hmm. 
And it's probably something to do with history, how somebody drew up a map and didn't look at people who lived there. So, for example, when you go from India to Nepal, it's very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you go later from Nepal to China, it's completely different. How so? Nepal, the roads are bad. The people are super friendly. So somehow you go through it and it's easy going. Mm -hmm. You enter Tibet, it's checkpoints, police, uh, checking if you don't have anything about the Dalai Lama, checking if you don't have a map where it mentioned Tibet. Ah. So it's far stricter, of course. Hmm. Then we drove to the whole of uh, Tibet and Xinjiang province, which is very strict with checkpoints. Okay. And then when you cross to um, Kyrgyzstan, it's completely different again hmm. in the atmosphere. Interesting. Yeah, you, you just touched on it a bit there about the roads in Nepal. That's what I, what I was going to ask about was that like as you're going from Myanmar where like there's – I mean, I haven't driven in Myanmar in 20 years, but there wasn't a whole lot of traffic in the roads in between cities. And I got to think that, like, I don't know, in some of the destinations when you're on, like, a highway, I don't even know if there's highways in India or Nepal or Tibet, but uh, when you get into the cities, it's got to be pretty chaotic. What was what was your driving experience like in some of these first few countries? I've been driving around in Myanmar for a long time, and um, I've been driving a long time in Asia, so... It was pretty hectic, but you get used to it. Like, I think the most difficult part was Kathmandu, probably. Hmm. Um, finding the road in Kathmandu. I remember at one point I went to the garage to just check up the car, and I had to drive back alone to my hotel, and I just couldn't find it. I was lost in all the small alleyways. At the end, I hired a taxi just to drive in front of me hmm. to go back to the hotel. Thinking about the start of the journey, kind of, let's say, India and Nepal. What are a couple of standout highlights of maybe driving through India uh, on that first stage? I think the first province we left in India, we um, we were stopped initially because they say there's like there's riots a bit further. You can't go through. And I said, well, I'm on my way to the Netherlands. I have to go through. Mm -hmm. So then they said, like, okay, you can drive, but stop at police checkpoints in every city okay, to check if it's safe. So that was quite exciting, especially because we arrived in an area where the, the government blocked the internet. Oh. So there was no more good navigation. You couldn't call, like, see anything on what was happening on social media. Ah. So that was quite um, interesting. Then when, you continue, when I continue further, like... Um, we drove to uh, Darjeeling. Okay. And that was interesting with all the, the roads. How so? It's steep ravines. It's very narrow roads. Uh, I remember we were driving, we were taking a shortcut, uh, which we shouldn't have done, of course. And while we're driving on the mountaintop, which was very narrow, we were wondering whether it was a one-way, like straight or not. Okay. And then we had cars coming from the other side. So that was, that was a scary bit, yeah. All right. Any other, like, uh, you know, maybe, like, sites? Like, you know, like, one of the big things about doing the road trip is, like, you're going to stop at the Grand Canyon. You're going to stop and see this. Were there any, like, specific tourist attractions, let's say, or places that you really wanted to visit that, that you made a little detour, perhaps, to stop and check out? Yes, we did stop. Uh, and, of course, I forgot the name of that province in northern India. Uh, 
which was independent for a very long time in between Bhutan and Nepal. It was very interesting to enter there. You have to enter tour gates with a stamp in your passport, although it's still India. Um, and we drove around there for two days and then drove out again to the same gates. We tried to take another gate, but that was not possible. Of course, Kathmandu is fantastic. I've been working there before as a tour leader. Um, and I loved it being back now. Uh, it's such a charming city, I think. Uh, then Tibet itself, we did, of course, make a detour to Mount Everest. Oh, wow. The guidebooks don't tell you, but like, well, on the Nepal side, it's a tough trek to the base camp. On the Chinese side, you can drive there by your car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, it's beautiful. Wow. So, you, I mean, there's, we could focus on any one of these countries for the entire show. So, we've kind of skipped through India. We're almost skipping through Nepal. I'm really intrigued by this drive through Tibet, particularly heading up to Kashgar and Xinjiang. And then I didn't even think foreigners would be able to go nowadays, let alone drive a car. So what was the atmosphere as you find yourself getting up through Tibet and into Xinjiang province and that area? It's it's strict. I mean, for you have to arrange everything with a travel agency. So when you arrive in Tibet, you have a guide sitting in the car for the whole time. Oh, really? So you yeah. pick up a wingman, an extra person? Yes, and then you drive to one of the biggest cities. It was basically one and a half a day drive where you then get a driving license, a Chinese driving license. Hmm. I didn't have to do the driving test, but I did have to do the eye test in the hmm. hospital together with like 50 other Chinese, Chinese people. So that was interesting. Then we had to get a, a number plate for the car, a Chinese number plate. Hmm. So the car had to be tested. And then we drove... The whole of Tibet, which was beautiful. Okay. It's, it's high. I think we are mostly at 4,000 or 5,000 meter. Stunning scenery. And you've got the guide in the car, this other person. Yes. Yeah. But, which was good, actually. The guy was a Tibetan guide. And because he was sitting in the car, we, he could speak freely hmm. about anything. Okay. So then once we went down to Kashgar, we changed guide. We had a guide from uh, Kashgar. Um, in that area, you had a lot of checkpoints. Okay. And any checkpoint was stricter than Suvarnabhum Airport security. Oh, really? Yes. So each checkpoint could easily take 30 minutes to one and a half hour, mm. whereby they check all the, all the pictures on your phone. Really? They checked your luggage. They checked everything in the car. So that was really strict. Up till the point even that you leave the country, uh, when we left the country... On arrival, we had to surrender our phones, and they were gone for two hours, whereby they just checked anything on the phone. And my friend that time, she had some uh, colleagues, former colleagues who were based in Beijing. Mm-hmm. So they literally asked them, like, you have friends in Beijing. Who are they? What are they doing? So it was very strict. Wow. Yeah. So and then you come into uh, Kyrgyzstan, which is all very relaxed, of course. Okay. Were you able to actually see anything or see the sites in Xinjiang or Kashgar? Or? In Kashgar, yes. Okay. Yeah, in Kashgar, we went to uh, the big markets and all the different sites. It's it's beautiful. It looks very different from the rest from China. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the face from people, it, it, they look more Turkish. Uh, the food is different. So you're really heading into the culture of the Stan cultures. Okay. The Stan countries. 
Yeah, it's still it's I'm looking at some photos from the Google Maps of your trip and uh, like Tibet to Xinjiang. These these are like two of the, the last places you'd ever imagine most tourists would think of visiting, you know, and it's kind of funny that because you couldn't go through Pakistan, you had to do Tibet and Xinjiang, you know. And then uh, yes. to have a random guy in your car for 37 hours or something, that's what Google Maps said it took. It probably took longer with all the checkpoints and everything. But uh, you were saying like 10 weeks with anybody in the car, I could just imagine like some random dude getting stuck in the seat and he's clearing his throat like every 30 seconds like until it drives you insane. So I guess yeah, it could be some <laughs> challenges on the, on this exploration. But uh, yeah, we could have you on the show, I think, for a whole episode just to talk about that leg. But the stands, yeah, we've had we've had some episodes on the show about Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Maybe just from like a driving perspective, how are how are each of those countries different based on like the roads or or, or how easy it was to to drive around and uh, get to see or do any of the things that you wanted to do while passing through those countries? Kyrgyzstan, when you arrive in Kyrgyzstan, it's very very green. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, so you drive to Kyrgyzstan. The roads are good. Um, the food's very nice. It's it's quite easy. There's a lot of good homestays in Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Then you drive towards Tajikistan, and there's a, just this small road heading into the mountains, and you just see snow-capped mountains in front of you. Wow. And what's interesting, like, you leave Kyrgyzstan, so there's a checkpoint, there's a the customs and the immigration, and then there's one hour driving of no man's land. Whereby you wonder, like, what happens if my car breaks down and which country should I head back to or should I go forward? So we arrived then after one hour in Tajikistan. Very small border post. There was basically nobody because it's it's the beginning of the old Pamir Highway. Mm. And there we had to basically wake up some people um, to get all the stamps that we needed. And we still needed to do, um, I think, customs clearance. But the guys from customs, they didn't arrive yet. So the immigration said, like, wait for one hour. If they don't show up in time, just leave. But they showed up in time. Okay. It was 11 in the morning. They were half drunk. And then they said, okay, guys, you have to come and drink one bottle of, of vodka. I had my good excuse. I was the driver. So I was like, okay, sorry, guys, I can't do that. But my companion at that time, Max, he's like, okay, well, Max, you have to drink for two. So they finished a liter of vodka in, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes, and then off we went. Then it was okay to go. So it's beautiful. Ta- Tajikistan was probably one of the highlights. You drive along the Afghan border for four, four or five days. Oh, wow. With snow-capped mountains uh, on both sides. Sometimes you're so close to Afghanistan, you could basically st- throw a stone across the river and it would be uh, Afghanistan. So it's a beautiful part. I mean, the, the driving is a bit challenging because the roads are not good. Yeah, that, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to ask that because Tajikistan is such a smaller distance than what you just crossed in Tibet and Xinjiang. It must be because these roads are pretty windy and sketchy, huh? Exactly. If you look at um, the best road builders in the world, it's probably China mm. and Austria. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by the stands and the fact that it's part of this old Silk Road route. Um, you mentioned Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. You didn't quite touch on, but like, what was a key highlight of Tajikistan and say Uzbekistan? Tajikistan is the nature. 
nature nature is stunning you're high in the mountains beautiful people very nice people very friendly you have a lot of good homestays there okay so you drive to tajikistan then you start going down towards uzbekistan mm -hmm. you have the scariest tunnels ever tunnels okay so tunnels which were like i think five six kilometer long not lit with traffic okay. going in two directions so that was really scary um, then you arrive in the lower lands and you cross the border to Uzbekistan. And, well, Tajikistan, it's mountains. Uzbekistan is flat. Ah, it's okay. desert. Ah. Beautiful country, beautiful monuments there. We went to Samarkand, uh, Bukhara. These are stunning places. They are, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It lives up to the, the name, kind of their real mystical name. So what are they actually like? It's like a fairy tale, especially like Bukhara. Mm -hmm. It's like a walled city with uh, old traditional construction um, structures inside the old part of the city. Yeah, it's a it's a fairy tale. Which with the one thousand and one nights? Which one is it? I can't remember the name, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Again, I'm I'm following you here on the Google Maps, and hopefully we can share some of these images on our show notes so people can have a look at uh, some of the destinations that you passed through. Um, after Uzbekistan, I, I I'm not sure. Like, there's a land border there, so the photo I'm looking at, I don't know what country it is, but you're going to have to cross the Caspian Sea, which must have been by ferry. What was that? What was the ferry experience like? And uh, which country were you getting on and off the ferry to cross the Caspian Sea? Yes, after Uzbekistan, you get to Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is huge. Mm -hmm. It's desert, so it's basically just driving. You arrive. We arrived in a city called Aktau which was a very traditional Soviet-style built city. And that time, my friend, like, who was part of the trip, that part, that part, he loved these old Soviet cities, so he loved it. For me, he was a little bit less interested in the city, and I was like eager to get on the ferry to cross the Caspian Sea. The Caspian Sea, actually, it's a, it's a lake, but it's a big lake. And the weather can be bad, and that's why the ferries can have big delays. Hence, you can never know when you can book a ticket. So you have to go to the office, say like, okay, can we get a ticket? They say, no, like, just wait, 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 wait. Uh, then finally, after three days, they say, okay, you have to go now. Pack your bag, go now, drive. Hmm. So I did that. Like said, said goodbye to that friend of mine who was flying back from there. Drove to the port, which was about 45 minutes. Arrived at the port, 10 o'clock in the morning eager to go on the boat. They say, oh, just wait here, sit there. And you know how you feel like when you start waiting and you don't know how long it takes? Mm -hmm. It took me till like four in the morning. <laughs> 10 a.m. till 4 a.m.? Yes, yes. And then I could get on the boat. Okay, I was happy I was at least on the boat. It's, it's a big ferry. They even have trains on that ferry. A couple of wow. trucks as well. Um, I think a handful of travelers. And then I think it was supposed to take three days, but eventually it took five days. Five days? Because in the middle of the not in the middle of the sea, just before Azerbaijan, um, the sea was getting a bit more rough. Uh, so the captain decided to go on anchor and just wait. Food was provided, so it was like no complaints there. But it was just waiting till it was a bit more calm. Mm. And then they continued to Azerbaijan. 
That's pretty crazy. And, you know, what I also realized and is crazy about this journey is I think of all the places we just talked about as being the interesting bits, but many people would dream of a European road trip, right? We're starting to get into Europe and this is the part we're probably going to gloss over. But so now you hit the Caucasus and you go through Turkey. What were your impressions of that area having come from Stans and Myanmar, Nepal and Tibet? Like you cross into the Caucasus in Turkey. What's that like? It was good to arrive there because you arrive basically at the, at the edge of Europe. And that was already further than I basically expect my car would bring me. Because mm. when I left for Myanmar, I wasn't sure if I could actually make it to Kathmandu. Okay. <laughs> so, well, I arrived in Europe, so that was good. I didn't have much time in Azerbaijan and Georgia. But I, what I've seen from Georgia, Tbilisi was fantastic. And it's very European-minded. Mm-hmm. Everywhere where you see the flag from Tbilisi, you also see the European flag. Okay. That's how much people want to be part of Europe. And then we drove through Turkey, which is then very easy because it's nice food, very good roads, um, easy going. And then we arrived in um, Istanbul, where a friend of mine was, was living. So it was great to go around Istanbul for four days, then check the car at the garage there, and then went alone for the last stretch. You know, you really just sort of touched on it, but yeah, well, you didn't bring up any problems with the car, so I guess that's why we didn't ask. Did you did you have a single flat tire, or or did anything go wrong along the, the that past stretch that we just discussed? Not really, we didn't. No, I didn't have any flat tire. Wow, <laughs> I did. Um, I did go to the garage sometimes to check just that I heard some weird sound on the car, or there was like um, a dash light uh, blinking. But it's not that I ever stopped in the middle of the road. That's, so it was, it was pretty good. But it was good to, to go to the garage to, to have checkpoints. I remember in Kyrgyzstan, there was a fantastic Russian car mechanic who was just a genius on finding out what's caused a small issue at the car. At the end, it turned out that one of the cables in the engine was a, a fake cable and not the original spare parts. Mm. Once he changed that one, the light was not blinking anymore. So, no, the car was really good. Um, It was that good, actually, that when I arrived in the Netherlands, I thought, like, what to do next? So I decided then to send it back, uh, ship it back to Calcutta and drove back the same wreck into Mima. So so you still have the car? Actually, I sold it just like six months ago. (laughs) But yes, I was driving in the car all the time. Still. All right, one more similar kind of follow-up question. You talked about like checkpoints and stuff like that, but did you ever have any trouble with like speeding or breaking the law, running a red light or anywhere up until this point either? Of course I wouldn't speed. <laughs> Were there speed <laughs> limits? I mean, are you driving on the right side of the road the whole time? Was there any, you know, any sort of problems like that? There was um in Kyrgyzstan they once stopped me and there was just like a random checkpoint where they say, oh, you either pay money or we check all your luggage. Yeah. And I say, okay, I will we'll help you checking the luggage. Let's get it all out. So then they were like, bored with it and said, like, it's fine. Just drive. Um, the most difficult part, actually, was entering Europe. Oh, what? Yeah. I entered through Croatia. I first entered through Greece, then left Europe, then re-entered in Croatia. And there the customs say, like, where's your insurance card? 
And I had an insurance card, which I bought in Germany. And they sent it by email and I printed it out. And Croatia said, like, no, this is a, a printout of the insurance card. We need the original. So I first said, like, yeah, you, you're joking. What? Like, he said, no, I'm not joking. It's not valid. Um, so that was really difficult. Um, he insisted on leaving my car on the other side of the border, taking a taxi to Dubrovnik, find an insurance company that was luckily still open on Saturday morning, paid another 500 euro for an, for an insurance, had to Jeez. take a taxi back and showed exactly the same card as my insurance. It was just the original green card and not mm. a copy of it. So the most trickiest part is entering back into the civilized world, isn't it? Sure. So weird. So, I mean, mega journey, and we didn't even touch on the fact that you went through Greece and Albania and Croatia on your way back to the Netherlands. But, you know, what surprised you most about the entire journey? Maybe surprise, or definitely what I learned is that the world is a much safer place than people think it is, or that media would make you believe. So I never felt scared. Hmm. I mean, the, to be honest, like the most scared or the most cautious you have to be is when you're in Europe, because that's <laughs> when you really have to double check if you lock your car and if you where you can park, etc. I think the world is a much safer place than people think it is. Much easier to do this than you might think it in advance. Obviously, more bureaucracy the closer you come to Europe. That's really weird. It wasn't what I was expecting you to say, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it. I thought that Tajikistan would be dangerous or something. Not at all. People people are nice everywhere. Yeah, that's sort of what I thought. That's why I asked before we got into Europe, because I just assumed that once you get to Europe, you got to obey all the speed limits. You got to use your turn signals. You got to have the right insurance card, copy, blah, blah, blah. Whereas like perhaps in some of the more I don't want to say developing countries, but uh, old fashioned countries, let's say they're more likely to just have the understanding that, hey, this is some crazy foreign guy driving a car from Myanmar to Netherlands, and maybe we'll cut him some slack because that's kind of cool. Was that kind of the, the, the vibe you got from a lot of those countries? Yeah, people were welcoming. And like, if you see police, they were more being cautious that nothing would happen to you. What was the highlight? Like, I, I you know, picking that best moment's always tough. But when I ask that, like, what pops into your head first is kind of a real highlight. I think the real highlights for me was Tajikistan. Just driving through the mountains and there's this very rough area. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, but also like Uzbekistan is fantastic. Uh, India, Kathmandu is, is beautiful. Tibet is beautiful. The scenery in Tibet is stunning, of course. Mm -hmm. And if someone was going to decide to maybe follow in your footsteps a bit, let's say, and, and, and leave from Thailand, because we know more people in Thailand that might be able to buy a car in Thailand and set out from there than from Myanmar. Um, what do you think, like, what are your top tips for someone who's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do what Edwin did? Uh, what, what, what's the top three things they should consider before following in your footsteps? Well, at the moment, with the situation in Myanmar, it's impossible to cross. Okay. So you need to find a different routing, which is a bit more difficult. It should be possible from Laos to um, China. Mm. So I definitely would do that. Other things, I mean, 
just go with the flow, do it. Just like, don't be scared and just do it. And there's whatever you come across, there's always a solution. Ah, I like that. Pretty- yeah. Like, sorry. What about like cash? I mean, like, cause again, like, you know, being from North America, like the big road trip you might do, like me and a friend had talked about driving through Central America and South America down to Argentina where he was from. And like, you have to hide cash and you have to have multiple sets of hidden cash. Like, but, but nowadays, I mean, like just being able to find an ATM that works, that doesn't charge you fees and paying for gas and stuff like that. Uh, was there any logistical tips you could give people in that regard? Well, the, the thing is like, I live in Myanmar. Myanmar is cash. So we're very much used to cash. We're not that much used to credit cards actually. So I did mostly indeed with cash. And I did hide cash in the car. There was one border point where they asked me, like, do you have cash? It's like, no. And they asked, do you have more than $10,000? Like, well, actually I have, but I'm not going to tell you. So we had hidden it in the car and they didn't find anything. And when I stopped in the evening at the hotel, actually I wanted to check if it was still there and I couldn't find it because... Actually, I hid it in a different place than I remembered. So I found it again. So cash is always good, I think. But of course, you can use... There's ATM machines in China, in Nepal, in India, um, Uzbekistan as well, and in the cities as well, everywhere you go. So cash is king and hide it in the panels and ceiling and everything of your car. Hide it all around. And remember where you hid it. And remember where you hit it. Well, you first mentioned this adventure to me when we had dinner a couple months ago and I was knocked out. And that's why I said, hey, would you be on the podcast to talk about this? Because it's been a a dream of mine to travel overland from Bangkok to somewhere in Europe. And you've actually done it. So thank you for helping us condense a very large and complex trip in a short amount of time. Uh, Thanks so much, Edwin. Really, really interesting. You're welcome. And you definitely, you should do it. You get further than you think. Wow. So, you know, I didn't really know what to expect from this episode. You know, I've done a bunch of hitchhiking. I hitchhiked all around Australia. I, I, you know, danger and safety and breakdowns and border crossings add a whole new level of complexity to what Edwin did. But, you know, it was really nice to hear that it was doable you know i mean maybe he got a bit lucky with the car not breaking down as much as it might have uh, but otherwise it seemed like things went pretty smoothly yeah that is a very mega surprising part like i realize breakdowns are kind of luck of the draw but it sounds like he had a pretty good plan in place to go get that thing serviced so that was pretty smart but i was expecting a few more stories of you know the border crossings particularly like you know someone demanding tons of cash or holding you up for a full day in hopes of cash or maybe being robbed or a crazy breakdown or like and it just sounds like it all went pretty smooth and i i really like how he, he just said you know people people are friendly everywhere and and sort of take he didn't say take each day as it comes but it was just sort of that that feeling you know, that he went he had a plan he did it and then People were good and the world world is kind of good. And it's really only maybe governments and border people that can make it tough, but not even his border crossings weren't even tough. Yeah, you know, because you get into that, uh, the, the stands and, and that area and you'd think maybe like back in the Soviet days, those things would have been trickier, you, you know, like maybe 
some of the Chinese Xinjiang style, like, hey, they're real strict because they got some security issues of their own going on. So you got to deal with these things because of their own internal politics more so than who you are and what you're doing there. So that, you know, that was generally good to hear. One thing we didn't touch on much, which I'm kind of bummed about maybe, is uh, he mentioned there was some good homestays in Kyrgyzstan, but we didn't really talk about like where he stayed along the way. Because I was, you know, as a hitchhiker, and I used to camp and I'd sleep outdoors or in my tent or whatever. And it's kind of nice that in a car, you, you always have the option of sleeping in your car if you can't find something good. But he didn't mention much about, uh, you know, finding a place to stay along the way or whether he booked ahead or, you know, there's some logistical issues and some potential pitfalls with that part of the journey, I can imagine. Yeah. And I guess that's the challenge of such a big story in a, in a short conversation like this. Yeah. We didn't get into where did he stay or, you know, real high altitude moments or low ones or particular sites. And so, you know, who knows, there could even be a part two in this, but I really, really was surprised with how smooth it seems to have gone seemed to be well planned out. And and yeah, I mean, no major weird things that happened. So if you enjoyed listening to this episode, as we said at the beginning, you know, Trevor and I fund this ourselves and we do it for the love of travel. Recently, we shared some videos of cycling and running through Bangkok and stuff. So if you want that special content that comes out between these regular shows, become a patron, go to patreon.com, be like Corrine and help us uh, keep it going. Yep. Special thanks to our patrons. Keep supporting us. We really appreciate it. Uh, maybe I'll get out to the temples and buy some more postcards. Uh, I probably <laughs> owe a couple of postcards to some of our newer patrons. And uh, the kids there in the temple always love selling postcards to me. So thanks for listening, everybody else. Uh, check out our show notes uh, for this episode. We're going to have some photos of Edwin's trip and some screenshots from some of his Google Maps uh, in case you're feeling like doing a big road trip across Asia and Europe. Uh, otherwise, uh, come back to the show in two weeks and uh, we'll have another fun episode for you. Thanks for listening. Adios. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia?